All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen. With the uh, recent deluge of Twitter files, some of the most important facts have been kind of lost in the shuffle, in this whole 24-7 news cycle shuffle. Um, but between the revelations about the Hunter Biden laptop, the deplatforming of a sitting president, and the rampant shadow banning of conservative voices, these stories are just too important to ignore. So we are going to sift through the most important points of the Twitter files um, and uh, and much more on episode 376 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. And joining me today, I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good, sir. I'm doing just great. Glad to be here. And it's just us three. That's okay. We'll get Justin next time. <laughs> That's right. Also joining us, we have Chris Talgo, Editorial Director here at the Heartland Institute. Chris, how are you doing today? Good, sir. Doing good. Can't believe it's uh, just over a week before Christmas, but you know, time flies. Yeah, I know. It is going real quick. Got to get some last-minute uh, Christmas gifts here in the next couple of days. But uh, outside of that, um, I do wish everyone a very, very Merry Christmas. Happy holidays across the board. In fact, one of our uh, constant listeners w was gracious enough to send us a Christmas card. Uh, Jim showed us that uh, we got a card from TM Willemsa sending, sending good wishes our way. So we're very appreciative of that. A Christmas card and an ornament. Oh, yeah, it came with it. One. So thank you. Two thank you so one. much. That is so very sweet. Uh, I'm going to take that. <laughs> Actually, we have a tree here at the Heartland Institute. So I'm going to put that ornament on the tree right after the show. Perfect. Boo Booyah. It's got a it's got a microphone in there. It's actually from the Department of Homeland Security. They're just trying to listen into all these closed door meetings and everything. <laughs> um, before we get into any of the topics at hand, I do want to put that message out there to our audio only listeners that are catching this show probably on a Friday or later that if you'd like, you can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time where we are streaming on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Rumble. So you can join in the conversation. You can throw your comments and questions. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. And you could also very much help us out by hitting the like button for this video, subscribing to the channel if you haven't already, leaving a comment, sharing this content. All of these things won't cost you a penny, only cost you a couple of seconds, but it helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. So like I mentioned uh, at the top end of this, uh, I really wanted to dedicate the majority of this show to the Twitter files. So there's plenty of material and plenty of angles that are going to keep us chatting for, for at least an hour here. Um, but before we get to that, we have to spend a couple of minutes on this, this other story. So a new climate change movie has arrived in theaters starring our second favorite socialist and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Titled In the End. And here, here's the description for this uh, surely a world-stopping movie. Stopping the climate crisis is a question of political courage, and the clock is ticking. Over three years of turbulence and crisis, four young women fight for a Green New Deal and ignite a historic shift in U.S. climate politics. Mm. Well, despite a warming world, the film was met with a very cool reception. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I got an actual laugh. Hey <laughs> over, over the course of the first three days in mm. theaters, the movie raked in a staggering $9,667, which equates to about 80 bucks per theater. So, so uh, Jim, not quite Avatar numbers here. <laughs> what, uh, what are your thoughts about this? Not quite Avatar numbers, but probably the plot of it is just as uh, fictional as uh, Avatar is. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're full of jokes today. One-liners. No, I mean, if you if you consider that the a movie ticket would be ten dollars, and that would be a pretty discounted ticket, we're talking about eight people per theater. Um, I, most people have more people coming over to their Super Bowl parties uh, than 
she had per fever. And that's during COVID. That's during COVID. <laughs> yeah, they probably. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, there's actually there's this uh, um, trend which I love, and you and I, Donnie, have talked about this in the office, of re-releasing old you know, older films and putting them back in theaters so people can experience them in the theater again, like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, or I think they did it for the 20th anniversary of uh, Fellowship of the Ring. And actually in my local theater here in Northern Illinois, they put Elf back in the theater, um, which most people have seen, you know, a lot of people see. It's very popular, new, uh, you know, an instant classic of the 2000s as far as uh, Christmas films go. I guarantee you that there are, 10 times as many people in every showing of Elf at my local theater than there were in probably all of New York City, where she is from, that saw this, this uh, piece of garbage movie. And, you know, it just also shows that no matter how many signals the market gives to Hollywood that they don't want this stuff, uh, mm. that they continue to, to pump it out. You know, it gets great glowing reviews from all of the corrupt leftist legacy media. And it, uh, you know, gets sh shown at Sundance so that it has that uh, wonderful logo they can put up on front of it. And nobody's interested in this because it's just propaganda. Hey, Hollywood, yeah. stop giving us propaganda. Give us actual entertainment or documentaries that are actually interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah, Chris, I mean, I, I feel like, and this is just, you know, anecdotal, but I feel like I haven't seen AOC in the news much. <laughs> it has like the... Has the shine, you know, rubbed off that lamp a little bit? Like, you know, because she was the she was like the media darling for the left for at least like a couple of years. And it seems like she's just kind of like eh, tossed to the side. You think I'm reading too much into that? I think you're reading too much into that. Trust me, she is still the media darling. I'm going to take a little different stance on this. I think, first of all, the movie industry is, uh, you know, on, on going the way of the dinosaur. I think it's. Uh, you know, going extinct. I think uh, aside from a couple big blockbuster movies like, you know, Top Gun Maverick and maybe the Avatar 2, there just really isn't much of a uh, motivation for people to go to the theater. And why would you want to go to the theater and pluck down 20, 30, 40 bucks to watch a super boring movie about how terrible we are and how the earth is going to end in, you know, a decade? Well, uh, Chris, you know, people have go to the for you. you. You have an assignment. You are going to have to go and watch to the end with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and report back to us about it. You have to actually give us your review. <laughs> We're going to send you to the theaters right now. <laughs> you have to be back before the end of the podcast. It, it's it's not bad. It's not bad enough. We make him watch CNN and MSNBC. Yeah, man. Now he has to go watch this movie. Come on, man. It's Christmas. I don't think, I, don't think I can take that. I don't yeah. think I can do that. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, so I want to everyone in the chat, everyone that's listening to this, that's live right now. Uh, I want you to tell me what you think of, of AOC. Is she falling out of the spotlight a bit or am I uh, am I just getting better at ignoring her? Let me know. Uh, I'm very curious of what you think. But like I said at the beginning of the show, we have a lot of Twitter files to get to. Um, I, I dis we, we decided to skim over this story last week, mostly because the first round dropped right after we finished recording the previous week's episode. So because of that, we didn't really want to cover like a week old story. You know, what else new can we add to the conversation that hasn't been said by everybody in the, those past seven days? So instead, we briefly covered some of the bits of part one before talking about other stories. In fact, last week was a really good episode. If you haven't checked it out, make sure you go and do that. But uh, since last week, there's been four other drops of these Twitter files. And again, many of these came out shortly after we finished recording last week. So we could use the same justification to not talk about it. But the difference this time is that there was so much being released uh, in, in five different waves now that I think a lot of the important facts are kind of getting lost in the shuffle. So despite some of these revel revelations being several days old, I think it's important for us to sift through all the different Twitter files and highlight what's important. So, um, so guys, Jim and Chris, my, my plan is to basically just go through part one and then open it up for your guys' reactions. And then I'll go through part two. Ditto, same reactions, part three, part four. But as I'm going through it, if you need to stop me and interject something, feel free to do that. So let's start off with a little bit of context here. So um, in case you've been living under a rock for the past couple of years, Twitter, one of the largest social media companies out there, has been accused by conservatives of censoring conservative speech. These accusations have ranged from shadow banning or limiting the exposure of a tweet or person to suppressing topics from trending or even banning conservative speakers because of flimsy terms of service violations. 
this went on for a while and uh, conservative types like us have complained and reported on it and, and generally just grumbled to ourselves about how unfair this is. But then two major things happened that kind of blew this entire thing up. One, Twitter suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story in the weeks leading up to the election. And two, the platform booted then-sitting President Donald Trump after the January 6 riots. So in the years since then, Elon Musk purchased the platform, undid a lot of the censorship, and is now releasing documents, including emails and Slack messages, from Twitter to shine a light on exactly what went down at Twitter uh, over the course of these last few years. So, Jim, before I get to part one, is there anything I left off in that kind of introduction about all of this? No, I think that I think that uh, I think that did. Let's get into it. Is there's some really interesting uh, revelations here? Yes, absolutely. All right. So Elon has released batches of information to independent journalists Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger, who have sifted through the documents and started releasing their findings and conclusions titled Twitter Files, part one, Twitter Files, part two, three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the first part, and this one came out like nearly two weeks ago, but we're still going to go through it. We covered some of it last week, but, uh, you know, I want this podcast to kind of stand as like the place to go if you want all the facts about all of these Twitter files so far. So we're going to go through part one again. So this batch of releases has to do with the general censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story. Taibbi starts off this part saying, in an early uh, conception... Twitter uh, more than lived up to its mission statement, giving people the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. As time progressed, however, the company was slowly forced to add those barriers. Some of the first tools for controlling speech were designed to combat the likes of spam and financial fraudsters. Slowly over time, Twitter staff and executives began to find more and more uses for these tools. Outsiders began petitioning the company to manipulate speech as well. First a little, then more often, then constantly. So then he starts showing these emails, revealing the seemingly standard practice at Twitter where the Biden campaign or other, you know, potential, you know, officials would send a list of unflattering tweets. Then this list would be forwarded to someone to remove those tweets. And then that person would respond simply handled these. So it seems like this was just a standard practice. Uh, you know, Biden doesn't like this. Can we take it off? Sure. Why not? We we got your back. So let's get to the Hunter Biden laptop story. So it says Twitter took extraordinary steps to suppress the story, removing links and posting warnings that it may be unsafe. They even blocked its transmission via direct message, a tool hitherto uh, reserved for extreme cases like child pornography. So, yes, Twitter would go all uh, all out to make sure to stop, like, you know, that term that I just mentioned. I don't want to repeat it. And they use those types of tools to stop a New York Post article talking about Hunter Biden's laptop. Like and, and, actually, and actually, Twitter did a very terrible job stopping the exploitation of children on their platform uh, until Elon Musk took it over. And then it became something that was a focus. So just saying that as an aside. No, good point. Good point. So not only was this story spiked, the New York Post story, but people sharing this story had their accounts locked in some cases, including the then White House press secretary, Kaylee McEnany. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Yep. Weeks before the election, the company insisted that this was because the material from the laptop was hacked, even though there was no reason to believe this. It was a New York Post article. Uh, it's not like the, the, the people were being blocked for sharing Biden's Word documents outlining his best crack recipes or anything like that. Uh, Taibbi quotes a Twitter employee saying, uh, quote, hacking was the excuse. But within a few hours, pretty much everyone realized that that wasn't going to hold. But no one had the guts to reverse it. In an email between a communications official at Twitter and executives, the comms official says, I'm struggling to understand the policy basis for marking this as unsafe. And I think the best explainability argument for this externally would be that we're waiting to understand if the story is the result of hacked material. We'll face hard questions on this if we don't have some type of solid reasoning for marking the link as unsafe. So to me, this shows that they took action and then tried to justify that action after the fact. Basically, the complete opposite of what an open platform is supposed to do. 
In another communication, an employee asks, can we truthfully claim that this is part of the policy? And in the last bit of this drop consists of Democratic Representative Ro Khanna reaching out to Twitter and saying, uh, guys, why did you censor this story? This isn't a good look. So that's so that's the first drop. And I very briefly went through it just for the sake of time and the fact that we covered a lot of this in the last uh, the last episode. But um, but Jim, initial thoughts on, on this first part of the Twitter files. Yeah, well, uh, first off, uh, let's un- let's recognize that this is a brilliant strategy, the way this was rolled out by Elon Musk. Uh, he gave the information over to left leaning journalists who left their corrupt legacy media outlets uh, that had since become PR firms for the Democratic Party, uh, and they had struck out on their own. So that's that's one a signal uh, that uh, you know the corrupt media can't be trusted with this information. In fact, they proved that by calling this a big nothing burger and that this is really not news. Uh, and so, you know, that's important. That's a strong signal from Elon Musk, who everybody in the media and, you know, political people politically connected are paying attention to. Uh, and second, um, this he's also sending the signal that this type of independent reader-supported journalism, uh, um, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, and Michael Schellenberger all have their own substacks so they are supported by their own readers. And Musk is sending a very good, I think, and a strong signal that that is where real journalism is done. Because if he handed this over, one, if he just released it himself on Twitter through his own Twitter threat, people would say that he's being selective in his, in his release of this information. No, he gave all the information over to these three journalists with the only condition that, they're, that when they dig into this and find the news of it on their own independently, the only condition was that they put it on Twitter first through a Twitter thread like we've been showing on the screen, and then they could put it on their Substack and write more about it there. Uh, so I think that's wonderful. And no wonder, um, you know, the mainstream or the, the corporate corrupt legacy media is uh, is so nervous and, and so against Elon Musk. And in fact, we just saw the good news yesterday that The Washington Post has lost a half a million subscribers in the last year and that some layoffs are coming in January. So this is just a, another little wrinkle, another ingredient in the in the recipe for how our media in this country have destroyed themselves through their blatant partisanship and corruption and lies. Because when they say this is a nothing burger, that's a lie. Uh, and so they would have been only willing to spin this in the way that defended these censors at uh, at Twitter. They would have said that this is, in fact, the other uh, the other uh, outlets did not follow up on the great reporting by the New York Post on Hunter Biden's laptop, which was not just, you know, dirty pictures of him and hookers and drugs, although that was on there. It was also, <laughs> yeah, that's the salacious stuff. Um, but it was obviously not hacked. Uh, that information was irrelevant. What was relevant was that it it contained gobs of evidence of corruption in the Biden family business, which is trading on the influence of Joe Biden at the time, the vice president of the United States, to enrich the family. Joe Biden has been a politician since he was 29 years old, and he is now one of the richest men or when he left, uh, you know, he's one of the richest men in Washington, D.C. His his family has made untold tens of millions of dollars as a family on the business of trading off of Joe Biden. That's what was important about this story. And Twitter and the rest of our corrupt legacy media either suppressed it or didn't want to report on it. And that's how, I'm going to say it, that's how you kind of rig an election. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 crazy. And I'm glad that you kind of covered some of the stuff that's that was inside that uh, uh, Hunter Biden laptop story, because I think that that's kind of uh, almost ignored in this, you know, this idea that like, oh, it was just conservatives are just angry they can't post naked pictures of hunter biden as some type of revenge porn type of thing and it's just like that's not what it was at all like the thing that conservatives uh, uh um like grabbed onto right away was was some of those emails that suggested like oh yeah make sure we kick 10 percent up to the big guy mm-hmm. who does it mean by big guy could could that be his dad i don't know we got to look into this because this could be uh, a sign of massive corruption in the Biden administration or potential Biden administration at this point. And it was just like Twitter's like, nope, can't talk about it. Can't even share it in direct messages all within weeks of the election. So like, it, it's an absolutely crazy story. And this just kind of gives insight into that. They made that choice. They made the choice to get rid of it and then had to figure out how to justify it in the aftermath. 
So, Chris, when you when you're looking through all of this, when when I'm reading all of all of this off, like, isn't this just complete just a uh, uh, vindication of all the things that we've been claiming since this story happened? I think it's a vindication of the uh, the deep state. Because remember, this was uh, Hunter Biden's laptop was known to the FBI in December of 2019. They still have Hunter Biden's laptop to this day, yet they have not pressed any charges about uh, against Hunter in the past uh, couple of years. And the FBI, we know for a fact, went to Twitter, went to Facebook and other social media platforms just before the election and said, hey, just so you know, there's going to be this uh, this this disinformation dump. It's probably Russian disinformation. It's probably going to be about Hunter Biden. So the FBI and some of the uh, intelligence agencies went to Twitter, went to Facebook, and basically you could say strong arm them or, you know, threaten them or whatever. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Just kind of, you know, play ball with us. And then when uh, when the big guy comes in the White House, you'll be on good terms. So, you know, th th there's a lot of angles to this. I mean, I obviously think that Twitter, you know, was terrible and how they how they rolled this out and how they censored. I disagree with TB, Matt Taibbi, who said they manipulated speech. No, they censored speech. <laughs> Um, but I also think that this um, has uh, has, you know, larger origins. And uh, it also just goes to show that the deep state is alive and well and the deep state can do what they want. They can get away with it. And there's nothing we can do about it. Remember, this happened under the Trump administration, too. Yeah. And the, the, the other thing that like needs to be pointed out is that there has been polls. I didn't pull this up for the um, for my show notes or anything like that, but I've seen it. We've talked about it in other episodes. There is polls that show that a, a decent chunk of people may have changed their vote based on if this story was like a real story, if they knew about this story. So the idea that this happened and that this was censored in the weeks before the election could have completely changed the outcome of the election. Forget any ballot harvesting accusations. Forget about coolers full of votes, anything like that. Forget about all of that. This singular story and this singular action by Twitter could have changed the outcome of the election. I would even based go on I political. Would, uh, go ahead. I would I, I, I would be more strong. I think that it obviously did change the election. I don't think yeah. that it's a could. I don't think it's a potential here. I don't, I think it did. I think, I think it's, that's it's a fair statement to make. And, and yes. yeah, it's an absolute to me like this, this part, well, there's some crazy stuff coming up in some of the other parts, but this one was like one of the biggest pieces of this whole Twitter, uh, Twitter files thing. Jim, any last words on this set before I jump into part two? Uh, yeah, just quickly. I mean, they, they called this hacked materials that, that seemed through the correspondence. And what's great about this, uh, this piece of journalism, these pieces of real journalism, is that uh, Elon Musk handed over the Slack threads, and that's basically instant messaging within the company, to these, these reporters as well. And you see them discussing through the Slack and trying to justify to themselves what they know is wrong. They know this isn't hacked materials, so they try to find a way to justify it. Exactly. So they know they're lying. They're just trying to find a way to make it seem like if they're ever called, perhaps at a congressional hearing or called to account publicly, that they were following the rules when they were not following the rules. And uh, they were just exercising raw power because mm -hmm. they could. That's it. And they did it for partisan reasons, because there is no way, no way. They would have tried to say that this was hacked materials if that laptop belonged to Donald Trump Jr. And everybody uh, knows I, it. And everybody knows it because in this thread that uh, Taibbi first, the first one, uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter files number one, he shows that uh, <laughs> you know we know that the guys in Silicon Valley all lean to the left, uh, but they had they had donated to the Democratic Party. I think in the I have it here in my notes. It was like ninety seven percent in twenty eighteen. 97% or 98% in 2020, and then 99.73% of all political giving uh, was was to Democrats. <laughs> Wait, 99.7? 99.7. Is that what 99.7. Uh, so I, like I, that point three was like an accident. Yeah, it was <laughs> Someone probably, actually hit the, sent the check the to the wrong, wrong person. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we need to do a, uh, a safety check on that 0.03% because they, uh, they may not be very healthy right now. But, uh, you know, that's incredible. So the idea that they were, there was a remote chance that they were going to apply the rules fairly uh, to both sides is completely absurd. Yeah. And, and Donnie, just one other, one other quick take on this. 
Um, when the laptop uh, was left at the repair shop by Hunter Biden, you know, we have signed receipts. We, have, we know for a fact that it was dropped off and it was just left there. The owner uh, went to a bunch of people in the media. He went to the New York Times. He went to, you know, all the usual suspects. And they all just said, nope, we want nothing to do with this. New York Post was the only outlet brave enough to publish stories about this. I got to give Miranda Devine, you know, major credit. But what also happened uh, after uh, the Twitter, you know, basically silencing uh, the New York Post's account, the New York Post was was uh, was basically like berated as, oh, they're a tabloid magazine. They're the National Enquirer. When that is completely not true. The New York Post is actually the nation's oldest newspaper. It, yeah. What? It, wasn't the New York Post like stopped from tweeting until they took yes. down their post or something yes. like that? So it's like yeah. they couldn't even explain themselves or like justify why this right. is this is new worthy and all of that. Like it's it's just bizarre. And like I just don't want anyone listening to this to ever forget about what Twitter did in the lead up to that election. Never forget this. Well, it, and Facebook. That's true. Yeah. I mean, this is all the Twitter files, but essentially the same stuff was happening on Facebook. Yes. Um, and then one other thing, because Jim pointed out something that I skimmed past uh, when I was doing this, is that uh, be, we're trying to be comprehensive in all of the facts about all of this, uh, but there's no way that we're going to read every single point in the thread. So if you want to, if you want to check out all this stuff to, uh, uh, for yourself, I have all the links to all the different threads and all the different drops of the Twitter files in the show notes. So you should be able to find them uh, yourself as well. All right, let's get to part two. So part two was dropped by Barry Weiss. So this next part, um, she starts off by saying a new Twitter files investigation reveals that teams of Twitter employees build blacklists, prevent disfavored tweets from trending and actively limit the visibility of entire accounts or even trending topics, all in secret without informing users. Take, for example, Stanford's Dr. J. Bariachia who argued that COVID lockdowns would harm children. Twitter secretly placed him on a trends blacklist, preventing his tweets from trending. And this this guy uh, is also the person behind the Great Barrington Declaration. Was that what it was called, Jim? Yeah. Which yep. was basically like a, an anti, you know, we can do stuff to, you know, curb the spread of COVID without massive lockdowns, which have their own, you know, uh, negative repercussions and all of that. So he was stopped because of his anti-lockdown rhetoric. Or consider the popular right-wing talk show host Dan Bongino, who at one point was slapped with a search blacklist so that it seemingly, if even if you looked for him, you wouldn't be able to find him. Charlie Kirk also had a do not amplify tag on his account. Uh, Twitter denied that it does such things in a 2018, uh, in, in 2018, Twitter's v Vijaya Gotti head of the legal policy and trust and Kayvon bake. I don't know how to pronounce any of these people's names. The head of product said, we do not shadow ban. They added, and we certainly don't shadow ban based on political viewpoints or ideology. And there was another article in my show notes. It's a national review article that shows like all the different times that Twitter says that they've never done this. And that includes the top of the, the, the tier there, Jack Dorsey, who is uh, in, a, in some interview talking about, no, we don't shadow ban and we definitely don't do it on political viewpoints or ideology. So this is like a repeated thing. And not only have they said this, but then left wing people defending Twitter through all these years repeated those things as if they were fact. And again, in that National Review article, you could find a bunch of uh, examples of CNN hosts challenging conservative people that are making these accusations saying, no, they don't do that. You're just making this up. So th this was the narrative that Twitter never did any of these things. But like I said, with those examples, they do have it. And there's in fact, there's screenshots where you can see like Charlie Kirk's Twitter file and on it, it has a tag saying, do not amplify. And, mm -hmm. and let me point out, because this is also important that do not amplify was not attributed to a specific tweet. It was to his profile. So he could have put, you know, I think dogs are better than cats or something like that. And that tweet wouldn't be able to be amplified or whatever. The algorithm wouldn't be able to push it to more people. His entire account had that tag on it. Um, Weiss explains that uh, the use uh, of the... Weiss explains with the use of statement from Twitter employees that the company does shadow ban. They just call it visibility uh, filtering. Yeah. So it's not shadow banning. It's just visibility filtering. 
It used visibility filtering to block <laughs> searches of individual users, to limit the scope of particular tweets' uh, discoverability, to block select users' posts from ever appearing on the trending page, and from inclusion in hashtag searches. That sounds a lot like shadow banning to me. That, that, uh, that's, like, that's like saying I'm not beating you in the face with a baseball bat. <laughs> I'm hitting you in the face with a club. Right, right. You know, your face doesn't know the difference because it's exactly the same. Yeah, Amber Heard. I, I didn't punch you. I just hit you. I just <laughs> so, hit you. Right. Something like that. Uh, Barry Weiss says, uh, quotes here, we control visibility quite a bit. This is a Twitter engineer that's being quoted. We control visibility quite a bit, and we control the ampli amplification of your content quite a bit. And normal people do not know how much we do it. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it, it was known inside the company that they do this, even though at the highest levels of Twitter, going on these interviews, CNNs and whatnot, and claiming the exact opposite. She then shows how popular Twitter account libs of TikTok was targeted by Twitter and how they essentially made up reasons to ban the account, even though the account didn't violate any of the uh, abuse and harassment rules. And then when the creator of this account was actually doxxed and had their address published on Twitter, when reported, Twitter chose to do nothing about it and, in fact, left the tweet up. Mm -hmm. so, it, it, so that last part just kind of shows the double standard uh, of all of this, that like even if somebody's doxing somebody on the right, ah, they're fine. We won't take any action against them. But God forbid Charlie Kirk says something conservative. We got to crack down on that. Uh, so that's essentially wave two. Jim, I'll start off with you. Yeah, I, and again, let's remember why this is important. You know, uh, they say what uh, Twitter has, you know, 33 million members or something like that, or, or active users. And so, you know, that's ten. That's a very small percentage of the population. Maybe it's only 3 million active users, or maybe it's even less than that. But why Twitter matters is because it's it was designed, sold as, and supposedly, or people wanted to use it, as a public square, especially for political and, uh, and political speech, to talk about what they think, you know, as the as the uh, uh, the original goal was to quote give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly and without barriers. I mean, that's upholding the American ideal. You know, that's that's what separated the United States from other countries. In a lot of time when I was growing up during the Cold War, there was the free world, and then there was the rest of the world. And in the free world, you know, we used to say things like, you know, hey, it's free country and you could say or do what you want. Uh, the most important speech that should be protected and allowed is that which is controversial. And mm -hmm. what Twitter was doing was labeling any speech that did not support the regime, which did not support to support the Democratic Party and call that dangerous to 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 suppress that because they wanted to make sure that their guy won the election. That's that's what this was about. And, and we used to. The, the the corrupt corporate media would uh, was was like losing its mind over the over Russia's supposed influence on the 2016 election and foreign influence in the election for for what for buying a few hundred thousand dollars worth of Facebook ads or something it was a joke it's always been a joke Russia didn't have anything to do with the 2016 election and affecting its outcome Twitter is interfering and did interfere in the 2020 election. And we are seeing in these materials just how much they did and the decision-making process, if you want to call it that, it's mostly just emoting on how they went, went about influencing mm. the election as best they could because they had the power to do it. And it's not just that public, you know, individuals, ordinary people like you and me are using Twitter to communicate and to speak and to, and to express ourselves. It's that Twitter like it or not, is basically the assignment desk for the national media in this country. And you might notice that even though this is about the only thing on Twitter that is trending and that is important and that is well-read, that is not being picked up by the uh, mainstream media, which is there has not been a single story, to my, to my knowledge, in the Washington Post, the New York Times, on any of the networks, not, not on CNN, only on Fox News, on, on indiv uh, by independent creators on YouTube, like the Heartland Institute and this podcast, those are the only people talking about this uh, because it would hurt them. And for the people on Twitter, what, what really amazed me reading through this, and I, I do encourage all of our listeners to read through it, especially the Slack threads uh, that, they had, that they exchanged, they think they're the good guys. <laughs> they have no concept that they're the baddies. And if you are censoring people, newsflash, you're not the good guy. If you are suppressing the speech of your fellow Americans because you don't like what they're saying, 
you're the bad guy. You're the villain. You're not the good guy. But these people think they saved democracy. They, they are destroying democracy because they are destroying the whole concept of free speech. And as we will see in later threads, they were coordinating with government agents to do it, which is a serious, serious issue. Yeah, you know, the, the whole affecting what's trending thing, you know, for someone that's not familiar with Twitter, they they might kind of dismiss that as not being important, but it's like hugely important. A lot of people, when they go on Twitter, they look specifically at what's trending to see kind of what's what's in the cultural zeitgeist today. You know, uh, oh, uh, Trump was wrong. Let's see what's on what, what he was wrong about. You know, you click on that. And now, because of all this visibility filtering, if there is some, you know, hashtag Trump was wrong, I'm just using it as a random example. If you click on that, you're only going to see ones that are in line with the narrative that's being supported by the people at Twitter, which, as Jim pointed out in part one, is 99.7% left leaning. So it, it, the amount of power that that uh, that this type of manipulation has on just kind of like what are the what are the talking points out there for the general public is massive and can't be understated. Chris thoughts on part two. I think Jim, you know, uh, nailed most of this, but um, one of the things that I uh, took from the second uh, dump was uh, that they are covering up the cover up. Uh, the mainstream media is actually now just pretending like this entire thing is not happening. I mean, you know, you guys said that there's been very, uh, very sparse coverage of the entire, you know, Twitter files and all this on the uh, CNNs and the MSNBCs. I have not seen literally one second of coverage. So not only not only did they lie in real time about, you know, uh, shadow banning not happening, because I remember I, you know, I, I watched these these channels and they they were always saying oh that's a conspiracy theory damagino is a total nutcase what are you talking about there's no evidence of that now the evidence comes out now the evidence is right there in front of them and what is their response we're gonna Crickets. ignore the evidence we're just gonna yeah. ignore this we're gonna pretend because like they'd have to happening. admit they're wrong they'd have to that's... admit they're wrong if they if they covered this well i wouldn't even say that they, they would have to admit that they're wrong i think that that it would be more of an indictment that the uh, that the legacy media, the MSNBCs and the CNNs, you know, among them are crooked. They're corrupt. They're they, 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 <laughs> they, they have a political agenda and they twist and spin and and don't report on news that doesn't fit their political agenda. And I, I am in 100 percent agreement with Jim. This is strict. I think this was all due to the fact that they were scared out of their minds of Donald Trump winning a second term. And they felt that they might have been somehow helpful to him in 2016. So they had to go way above and beyond from 2016 through 2020 to make sure that that would never happen again. They, you know, and I think that they went bent over backwards to not only hype anything that, you know, could could be detrimental to, you know, the the Republican Party or to Donald Trump. But then, you know, Donnie, I don't think we I think sometimes we don't place enough emphasis on what they omit, what they don't report on on the other side of things. Yeah, the Hunter Biden laptop, the entire mainstream media just pretending like that thing never existed. Now that all this evidence has come out that, of course, it existed and of course it was true and of course it wasn't hacked. They aren't even acknowledging that. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's it's all just crazy, and it, and it gets kind of crazier. So, Jim, unless you have something else to say, I'm going to jump into part three. Go part three. All right, part three of the Twitter files covers the months and days leading up to the January six. Uh, 2021. Just in case you're wondering, January six, 2021, in regards to Donald Trump. So, my biggest takeaway from this drop, and this was uh, covered by Matt Taibbi. Uh, was that it's pretty clear that Twitter is is playing loose with the rules. Um, it, it's as if they're just itching to remove Trump from the platform and they just need a plausible justification to do so. So we have Twitter executives during the course of this talking about, uh, you know, using phrases like the context surrounding Trump's tweets and and potential interpretations of his words. They're really trying to grasp at straws for reasons why we need to oust this guy off of our platform. At one point, and this is point number 16, Andy, if you're looking for it, someone at Twitter points out uh, that Trump's uh, tweeted about, quote, 50,000 Ohio voters getting the wrong absentee ballot, saying that it's out of control and a rigged election. The person mentioning this says rigged election. Would that be enough of a violation or that would be a violation, right? 
to which the Twitter executive says, well, if if the facts were inaccurate, then yes, but it looks like it's true. You can almost feel the dis- the disappointment between these two guys talking about uh, Trump's tweet. Um, so actually, scratch that. That's not the most important takeaway. The most important takeaway from part three is the 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 developing cozy relationship forming between uh, uh, Twitter executives and the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. So this gentleman, Yoel Roth, he is the head of trust and security at Twitter, who will be mentioned kind of frequently during the rest of these uh, during the rest of these drops, uh, talks multiple times about meeting with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security on a weekly basis. At one point, a policy director asks about how they should frame the fact that the FBI is involved in their moderation practices. Should we just should we just say uh, that we detect misinfo using ML? I don't know what ML is. ML, human review and, quote, partnerships with outside experts. Perhaps we could just call it a partnership, uh, clearly trying to obscure the fact that these partners with outside experts is the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. So that that's the biggest takeaway on this one. <laughs> Jim, you're throwing up your hands. Uh, do you want to take this one first or should we hand it off to Chris? Uh, go to Chris. I, I got to calm myself a little bit. <laughs> Chris, uh, uh, weekly weekly meetings between the executives at uh, Twitter and the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. Nothing fishy there, right? You know, Donnie, what's really sad is... Uh... You know, five, 10 years ago, I, I I had the utmost respect for the FBI. I really thought that they were doing their jobs and that they were there. To, they were there to solve federal crimes. They aren't in that business anymore. You know what business they are in now? It's protecting the Democratic Party. And that is a fact. And this is a, you know, indisputable point of evidence that that shows that their their number one priority is protecting the Democratic Party, not protecting the American people. The FBI is completely corrupt. I thought finally when Chris Ray was, you know, sworn in as the head that he was going to clean house. No, it's actually gotten worse under Christopher Ray. We've seen all the people that they've gone after who have been a part of this, whether it's Rudy Giuliani, whether it's Steve Bannon, you know, on and on and on. But they are not going after anyone on on the other side. So it's just the, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, the intelligence agencies in general, because never, never forget that 51 former intelligence agency uh, heads from Michael Clapper to General Hayden to, you know, on and on. They came out and said the, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop is, you know, Russian disinformation. And Joe Biden used that in the last debate against Donald Trump and the uh, moderator at the time just accepted that as, yeah, well, that, that that's true. So huh. the FBI, the, the fact that they are going out of their way to help Twitter ban and, uh, you know, censor is extremely scary. The FBI has been corrupt to the core and it needs to be cleaned house. We, 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 we you know, the intelligence agencies, same thing, you know? Yeah, no, it, it's, I don't know. It's when, when the FBI is getting involved, it, it, you know, if it, if it's just like these people at Twitter and they're in their echo chamber, I'm gonna steal Jim's joke that he told me the other day. But if they're in an echo chamber inside an echo chamber inside an echo chamber, <laughs> and it's like if they just think they're doing the right things and like you know taking down tweets that they think are you know some violation of whatever policy, it's like that's one thing. But when you have the FBI meeting with them on a weekly basis to weigh in on these decisions. That gets to like a, a, a scarier level of corruption. Well, Donnie, but not only weighing in the decisions, they were the instigators of this. They went to these places saying, oh, we are expecting this. So it's not as if they were like innocent bystanders. It's not as if Twitter or Facebook, you know, I know we're focusing mostly on Twitter right now, but it's not as if Twitter like went to them saying, hey, what do you think about this? It was actually the opposite. The FBI went to Twitter, you know, I, 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 out of their own volition saying, right saying we're expecting this stuff to come yeah. and and you know and, and once again it's like I, I i think that twitter was caught somewhat between a rock and a hard place by by you know the fbi saying you better play ball because if you don't play ball well then there might be consequences later down the road i'm not excusing twitter whatsoever those the executives at twitter were you know corrupt to the core as well however i i, I do think that the fact that the fbi you know went to them and 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 you know began 
all of this is something that we should sure. really focus on. Yeah, and and the most solid piece of evidence for what you're saying is the uh, Mark Zuckerberg on Joe Rogan talking about how the FBI came to them and warned them before the Hunter Biden laptop story was coming that, yeah, you're probably going to see some misinformation coming your way pretty you know, soon. Yeah, I, I, last thing, and I know Jim's probably, you know, chomping the bit here. He's got a lot to say. But, you know, given the fact that our nation is under a crime epidemic, you would think that the FBI would be more concerned with solving some of these problems. What are they more concerned about? Monitoring election disinformation? Like, get, come on, give me a break. Uh, Do go your ahead, job. Jim. <laughs> go ahead, Jim. Monitoring election, so-called election disinformation, and also we still have uh, two other parts after this. Yeah, so. I know. And also, and I'll, I'll try to be quick. And also, labeling uh, parents to show up at school board meetings as domestic terrorists—that's another big priority for the FBI. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, we've had comments, commenters here on our YouTube channel, saying that the FBI is utterly corrupt, and uh, and, and Chris had also said that, and it's true. But you're you're meeting your your Twitter executives, and you're meeting weekly with the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of National Intelligence on election security. Let's also be clear about something. Nothing that was said on Twitter by anybody threatens the security of an American election. Nothing. Right. To say so is to create a, a fantasy and a pretext to, to suppress the speech of, free, of, of Americans who are supposed to be free to say what they like. And when you are coordinating with government agencies to suppress the speech of somebody else, that is a legal violation of your First Amendment rights. And there may be uh, there may be some lawsuits or maybe some criminal activities, not out of this uh, Department of Justice and other corrupt agency. Um, but against that's a violation of your civil rights as an American. And to do it right before an election is it makes the crime even worse. But let's just, you know, also kind of unpack what's going on here. So Twitter is coordinating with the government uh, to, I guess I'll call it again, rig the election with agencies of the government that undermine Trump. Before he his presidency even began, you know, uh, if you remember, there was a meeting in the uh, it's been reported there was a meeting in the Oval Office between Obama, Biden, and some other people about how they needed to to make sure that government agencies were investigating Trump for his supposed coordination with Russia. All of it a, a, a freaking fantasy. Hmm. But these agencies they were they were undermining Trump even before he came into office. They illegally spied on on him and uh, and his uh, campaign officials. They framed Michael Flynn. His incoming, uh, I believe his position was going to be national security advisor. They framed him. The FBI framed him to charge him with crimes that he didn't commit to get him out. These agencies tried to destroy the presidency of Donald Trump every minute of every day. But nah, there's not. And they're coordinating with, with Twitter at the 2020 election to make sure to, to preserve our election security. Are you kidding me? So, yes, you know, there are a lot of people who may think. You know, this really is all a nothing burger. You know, we already know that, that Twitter was was uh, even though you denied it six months ago, we already know Twitter was shadow banning conservatives. We already know that that uh, Silicon Valley is all left wing. It doesn't really matter, does it? It does matter. These details do matter. I mean, it's the difference between saying, you know, well, we all knew the Titanic sank. Does it really matter how it happened? You know, or as Hillary Clinton might say, what difference at this point does it make? These Boom. All right. Jim stole one of my jokes. Difference. I stole one of his. So we're yeah. all square. <laughs> Yours was better. But that's why these details are important, because it uh, shows the, the the depth of the corruption and the violation of our rights as American to speak to speak freely. Right, right, right. All right. Let's jump to part four here. Part four revolves around the uh, the actual removal of Donald Trump in the days surrounding the January 6 2021 riots schellenberger shows how uh one twitter created justifications to ban trump uh two that they seek to change uh they seek to change of policy for trump alone distinct from any other political leaders and three the express of concern for free speech or democratic Im implications of the ban they weren't there so after the riots, a bunch of people were demanding that Trump be removed. This included Michelle Obama, the Anti-Defamation League, just to name a few. Like I mentioned before, Twitter at the highest levels is just looking for any excuse to get rid of him. That uh, Royal Roth, I'm just going to call him Roth. Uh, Roth, that I mentioned before, believes that Trump is an actual Nazi. And again, this is the head of uh, like Twitter safety and inclusion or something stupid. Um, so, so there's a tweet from this Roth that that's pointed out from 2017 referring to quote, actual Nazis in the white house. So the guy that's making these decisions at the head, or at least contributing to these decisions at the head of Twitter thinks that Donald Trump is an actual Nazi. 
So that that's that kind of shows you how biased you know this person making some of these decisions are. Roth is seen multiple times reassuring people that they're working on it, and it meaning banning Trump. At one point, he messages somebody, guess what, all caps, Jack just approved repeat offender for civic integrity, a new policy that would result in a permanent ban on people. So he was cheerleading this as as like, we're getting there. We're getting close to being able to ban Trump. Uh, Trump is then banned for, quote, risk of further incitement of violence after his final tweet stating that he would not be going to the inauguration of Biden on January 20th. So Trump never used the platform to incite violence. Trump never used the platform to promote an insurrection. He did repeatedly use the platform to suggest that the election was rigged. And after Twitter decided they wanted him gone, they used that as justification. There's a little bit more to this part that focuses on uh, uh, Twitter trying to stop talk on the platform about the hashtag stop the steal. Um, and this Roth character and another employee goes back and forth about what, what would be the best way to get rid of people talking about the stop the steal posts without uh, w- while still allowing people criticizing the hashtag stop the steal. It was just kind of interesting insight that they're just like really carving out just like their political, uh, um, their bias when it comes to, uh, um, you know, cracking down on some of these things. But uh, that one, you know, by itself wasn't the, the craziest of these drops in my opinion, but maybe there's something I missed Jim. Do you have any, any thoughts on this? Uh, no, I mean, Yoel Roth, he's, he's the, he was the head. Yoel. Yeah. yeah. Just like Joel, just say Yoel instead. Yoel <laughs> Roth. Uh, yeah. I know you're terrible with names and I'm uh, very bad. Yeah. Uh, you, you butchered uh, J uh, Jay Bachara's name too. So all right, John, relax. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> The, uh, yeah, so he was the head of trust and safety. I mean, it's the, the thing of another thing that's re- revealing about this stuff is how Orwellian and and creepy some of these positions are. It's like I'm the head of trust and safety, when of course he acts the opposite of 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 imbuing imbuing trust and safety on Twitter, because to to them, if you if uh, an opinion not approved by the regime and by the Democratic Party is unsafe. And can't mm. be trusted, you know. And so it's just crazy. But the, the happy news is, is that Elon Musk nuked that that department today. He said that 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 department of trust and safety, we're not doing that anymore. Yeah, we don't have any trust, so yeah. we're just going to get rid of it. Right. Uh, uh, Chris, I'll, I'll come to you, but I'm just going to go through part five for the sake of time, and then we can just kind of have an open discussion about all of it in context here. Mm. Um, so this last part focuses on the days. Um, I was going to say after Trump's ban, it also kind of has some info that relates to right before it, too. So it's just right around that ban. In a convo between two Twitter employees, one employee justifies the ban. There's some juicy stuff in this one. One employee justifies the uh, move to ban Trump because he became a threat to democracy and that the January 6th riots showed, quote, he clearly attempted to overthrow our democratic system of government and showed no signs of remorse. The drop also discussed an open letter signed by 300 Twitter employees to Jack Dorsey demanding Trump be banned from Twitter. Twitter staff concluded that Trump had not violated Twitter's policies. There's one quote here saying, I think we'd have a hard time saying that this is incitement, wrote one staffer. They go through Trump's tweets one by one saying, nope, this doesn't violate anything. Nope, this one doesn't violate anything. In fact, there are communications about the I'm not going to the inauguration tweet saying it's no clear violation. It's just him saying he's not going to the inauguration. <laughs> like There's nothing here to ban him for. But despite all of this, as we said in part four, it was used as justification to ban him anyways. So then Barry Weiss goes through and, and points out how Twitter deals with other world leaders uh, who, who tweet direct incitements of violence. So there's a handful of examples. One is from Iran's Ayatollah Khamenei, who tweets, quote, Israel is a malignant cancerous tumor and that it has to be removed and eradicated. It is possible and it will happen. The tweet wasn't deleted and the Ayatollah was still allowed to stay on Twitter. A former Malaysian prime minister tweeted, Muslims have a right to be angry and to kill millions of French people for the massacres of the past. That tweet was deleted, 
but the former PM was allowed to stay on Twitter. There's similar occurrences. I won't go through all of them uh, with the president of Nigeria, the prime minister of Ethiopia, the prime minister of India, all directly calling for violence, all allowed to stay on the platform. After seeing the tweets by uh, after seeing that the, the tweets by Trump didn't violate Twitter's terms of service, the uppermost people at Twitter started to look into the idea that perhaps it's, quote, coded incitement to further violence, despite uh, uh, perhaps it's a glorification of violence. Maybe when Trump referred to the 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, he was actually referring to the couple of hundred rioters on January 6th. I'm not even joking. Like, these are the communications that I'm, I'm reading through for all of this. This thinking escalates out of control with one communication saying, quote, they, referring to the higher ups of Twitter, understand our assessment of the individual tweet but they now view him as a leader of a terrorist group. They're talking about Trump here. Leader of a terrorist group responsible for violence and deaths comparable to the Christchurch shooter or Hitler. And on that basis and on the totality of his tweets, he should be deep platformed. They will continue to push that argument with leadership and they will see where it falls. So that's, that's the mindset of these people that are making these decisions. Uh, uh, comparable to the Christchurch shooter and Hitler. Like, <laughs> Chris, uh, we've only got like th- four more minutes, but uh, mm-hmm. that's that's the end of the of the Twitter files that have been released thus far. Uh, thoughts on this one specifically, or just them in totality? Well, if Twitter was so concerned about inciting violence, then how come they did absolutely nothing during 2020 when there were all sorts of left wing groups like Antifa calling for massive riots and they, you know, did incite all types of violence and they did kill people. So there's that. Uh, But, (laughs) you know, but once again, I think this is just, you know, par for the course for Twitter and big tech and, you know, big media because they have a political agenda and they will bend over backwards and twist themselves into pretzels to protect their political agenda. Like Jim said earlier, and I want to just stress this yet again, this was all due to the fact that they were desperate to get Donald Trump out of the White House because for better or worse, Donald Trump presented a viable threat to the deep state and to Washington's you know, go-along to get-along mentality. Yeah, I, I just want to point out one other thing. Uh, this is something that we talk about all the time when we're talking about Twitter or Facebook or anything, but it has to be said, especially in an episode where we're dedicating completely to the malfeasance of, of Twitter, is that if it was a uh, an open platform, and because it's an open platform, they get all those Section 230 protections, like they should not be allowed to operate like this. Right. If you want to, if you want to get rid of that and act as a publisher and choose what type of messaging allows on your, your, you know, your published thing of Twitter, you can do that. You're absolutely allowed to do that. But guess what? You lose those Section 230. Protections. You know, you know, Donnie, just just real quick before I'll let Jim have the last word here. Section 230 was passed in the mid 1990s as a decency act to prevent right. people from from proliferating pornography and other really like disgust like child porn and that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. It was never under any any, you know, means supposed to be used to censor Americans' right to freedom of speech. But it has been, you know, used uh, for that means now. And and the Republican uh, House of Representatives come, you know, next year, they better do something about this because if they don't do something about it now, I fear that it's never going to, you know, nothing that's ever going to change. Jim, final thoughts on this and the final two minutes of the podcast. When they finally banned Trump and they, they, they kept going around and around trying to find a justification. And even though they didn't have a justification, again, we can do it. So let's just go ahead and do it. We'll just do it. And the, the, again, in the, in the Slack threads and the internal uh, messaging uh, program of Twitter, the celebrations, yay, hands up in the air, emojis and all this stuff. Like they were so happy immediately after, uh, you know, I guess doing a few shots and uh, making some margaritas to celebrate, they turned around to each other and said, well, if we could do that, how about we get rid of uh, all supposed COVID misinformation? Right. Uh, and there should be, and there was a, a commenter here who said, uh, you know, that there should be another whole show or there should be certainly investigations on the suppression of truth or at least questioning the approved government Fauci narrative 
about COVID that was all suppressed on Twitter. And that is arguably even more important of a subject matter than whether or not Trump is, uh, you know, how Trump gets banned from Twitter and how, uh, you know, the people at Twitter were rigging the election in favor of their candidate at, at to the best of their abilities. But, uh, you know, Dr. J. Butter, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. But, yeah, I know. I don't have oh. his name. I don't have the name in front of me. If I see it, I can say it. <laughs> Dr. Benetari. J. He's okay with, he's okay with Dr. J. He's been on our, uh, on our podcast, actually, our health care news podcast in the past. You know, they were suppressing his account because he dared to say, hey, you know, uh, we should be able to question some of these things, uh, whether the, the efficacy of vaccines, the uh, we should be able to talk about any side effects here. We should be able to actually talk about this virus the way we talk about every disease ever anywhere. And immediately after banning Trump, they thought now we can do this for medical disinformation, supposedly. And they mm -hmm. did. And so, you know, this is a big deal. Uh, I hope we could get into it more on the COVID angle as far as suppressing free speech, because that happened and more of that's going to be coming out, I think, probably at the behest of Elon Musk in this very same way. Yeah, and it'll probably come out like five minutes after we end this podcast. Well, and, 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 sure. and, 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 and one last thing, this applies to us as the Harlan Institute. They also do the same thing with climate change. Oh, sure. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No doubt. Um so yeah, uh, um, if this was a little bit dense, I apologize. We tried to get, again, like five of these Twitter files drops all in this one hour podcast. So it was a little dense, but I think we did it pretty successfully. So I'm going to give ourselves a pat on the back for that one. But uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of the In The Tank podcast. Join us every week for a new episode. Uh, if you like the show, please leave a review for us. Subscribe if you haven't already. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to hit that like button, that share button. Leave a comment underneath the video. Subscribe if you haven't already. All things that won't cost you a penny, only cost you a couple of seconds, but will help break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. If you'd like, you can follow us on Twitter at In The Tank Pod. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions for the show, feel free to email us at in the tank podcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? Well, I hope everybody goes to stoppingsocialism.com. We've got a bunch of new stories up there, and uh, the socialists are are definitely on the on the march. <laughs> That's right. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week.